Welcome to Be Your Own Best Coach with JJ, the podcast. I believe that the best coach you can ever have is that one person that is staring straight back at you every morning in the mirror, you. Join me in discovering some key strategies so that you can create an empowered life and inspire others to live theirs. Your journey to being your own best coach starts right now. Welcome everyone to Be Your Own Best Coach with JJ. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing the fabulous Jessica Douglas. Now Jess Douglas is a lifelong cyclist. Born in Geelong, her bike is a vehicle that delivers a journey of self-reflection and personal growth. This is translated into every facet of her life. A cancer survivor and an endurance cyclist have allowed Jess to learn how to turn adversity into resilience and growth. Ten years ago, she developed a simple methodology called the 1% rule, which she practices and preaches daily with life-changing results. She is a three-times world solo 24-hour and a three-times Australian solo 24-hour mountain bike champion and has done many other crazy long-endurance-based races and adventures. We're not riding bikes, Jess coaches and mentors athletes and has a passion for facilitating people to be their best. I am so excited. I've had Jess, I've, I've just had a chat with Jess before. I said she's been on my radar to interview and I'm really thrilled that she's with us today. Hi, Jess. Hi, JJ. Thank you so much for thinking of me. Um, it was a bit of a mouthful of an intro. I know, but that's because you've just achieved so many things. <laughs> oh, thanks. You're too kind. <laughs> So where did it all start for you, Jess? Like where did where did it start for you in sport? Were you like a sporty kid? God, no, absolutely not. No, no, no. no. Really? Um, that really surprises me. When I when I was young, I I definitely had a very uh, adventurous mind. I love doing adventurous things, but the the thing that brings, uh, I guess, you know, the most vivid memory of my life is when I was four. On my fourth birthday, I got given a second-hand bicycle. And yeah. um, it was just this little bike and we lived in Ballerine Street uh, opposite the brewery, which is now an orthodontist. Um, anyway, we lived in Ballerine Street and um, my dad got me out the front and, and started holding me on this bike by the seat and just sort of, you know, pedal. And and I remember riding off and, and I was just pedalling and, and it's still so strong in my mind and my heart today that as – as I turned around, I realised he wasn't there holding my seat anymore. Yeah. And from that day onwards, I realised, like, it's just like every single day I wanted to be on my bike and go and explore places. So it wasn't about that I would use a bike to be an athlete. My bike was this this thing that would take me places that my parents couldn't and whatever I could conjure up and imagine I would do. So I was a big reader of the Secret Seven and the Famous Five and Nancy Drew and Folk of the Faraway Tree and all those books. And so my bike, my bike allowed me to do that with myself. I didn't need friends. It was just the bike. So as a kid in high school, sorry, primary school, I didn't join in the, like I did PE, but I, I got my mum to write notes so that I didn't have to go and do swimming sports or 
you know, that kind of thing. I never, ever wanted to be on the after-school netball team. I just thought, honestly, that people who played sport were obviously um, destined for the Olympics and that I wasn't <laughs> part of that. I was a bookworm. I liked cooking. I liked reading. I liked um, I liked painting. Uh and I liked riding my bike, but I certainly was no athlete. So yeah, it wasn't until it wasn't until much later on, my, on in my life that I realised that I had an inner athlete. Yeah. So when did that start for you? When did you suddenly say, "Well, from riding your bike and going for adventures to suddenly getting really serious about?" Because often stuff that you do when you were young. I mean, I used to be a dancer, mm. and I did that for a long time. Uh, and then often as you get older, that sort of drops, can drop off. Mm. So, and the opposite happened for you. So, so when did that start? When did you start thinking, how did you get into professional competing? Look, there's a few keystone moments in my life where I can look back and go, yes, that consolidated that, which moved on to that, which moved on to that. So forgive me, I'm going to have to backtrack a little bit. Uh, it was in grade, yeah. in grade five and six, I had these really great teachers. I went to... Um, Geelong East Primary School, and we had a bike ed program. Now, we were taught how to ride our bikes and actually get out on the road and use hand signals, and and it, cul it culminated in this um, camp where we rode to Queenscliff and back. And that occurred to me at that point, I can ride long. I can go out and explore on the weekends without my parents and, you know, I can pay, take a backpack and do things. So that was that was moment number one where this, this ability to take my bike and ride it long without needing adults around me was step number one. So step number two was um, when I had cancer. So that was in 1987 and I was uh, diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and that – I ended up going to this um, event called Camp Quality and I went on quite a few Camp Qualities and they're, I guess, more of a, a camp that the kids get to go on and, and alleviate the parents of the burden of having their sick ch children around and the kids get to have fun. And, and I met these kids who were from Sydney and it, I was thinking, oh, I really want to catch up with you guys after Camp Quality school holidays are coming up, I will ride my bike to Sydney. So I started mapping out this thing that I was going to ride my bike to Sydney and I, you know, mm. I, it was going to happen. I was going to catch a train back home and I was 15 by this time. I'd finished my cancer treatment and I was given the all clear. But my mum said to me, you're not allowed to do the this ride to Sydney. I don't think that you, I, it's not you that I don't think can do it. I actually think that you might die because cars will Cars don't care about cyclists and I don't think you'll get there safely. So she goes, but there's this thing called the Great Victorian Bike Ride. You should find out more about it. And so I went to this, I went to one of my teachers at school and I said, we should do the Great Victorian Bike Ride. And so we did it. And that was, I think I was in year 10 and um, it was every single day for nine days, packing up a tent and riding 100Ks. It was like, oh, wow, this is the most fun thing of my life. So I went back again and did it for next year. So that was so that was for nine, how many days? Did you say nine, nine? Nine, nine days. Nine days. So, so how before that? How far had you ridden? Oh, because nine days going. <laughs> yeah. Look, I don't know, but I think that probably the longest day I'd ever ridden prior to that was fifty k. 
And so, you know, the longest I ever did at the Great Victorian Bike Ride in when I was in year 10, uh, 1988, would have been about um, 120. So it was a big jump. But, but you know, yeah. I just did it. I was there. I was in the moment. I was a kid. Who cared? You know, I, I just survived. Yeah. I just survived cancer and I you know, I had learned a few things about myself during that journey. So then the next phase that happened is I met my husband um, and I, I'd had this dream that I was going to ride my bike in Europe and be, you know, before the age of 30 and I was going to ride around and three months and just eat baguettes and, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, um, and then when I met my husband, Norm, um, I said to him, this is my goal. I just, I really need someone who wants to fulfill this goal with me. By the age of 40, I want to have ridden around in Europe, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, long story short, I met him and he instilled in me probably part of the athlete that I am today. At about the age of, I think I was 18 or 19, we got married when I was 18, we moved to Sydney and we went to this theme park and this theme park had water slides. And you know those really fast water slides that are those speed slides that go down really fast. Yeah. And yeah. we were working our way through these water slides and, you know, we're freshly married. We're on a honeymoon, which wasn't really a honeymoon. It was just time off doing anything. And um, he's like, oh, let's go do this water slide. And I'm like, no way, no way. That's far too scary. Nah, I'm not touching it. And he goes, well, come and have a look at it and let's see what you think. So we went to the bottom of this water slide, watched people for a while, and he said, you know, what's what's happening to these people? And I said, nothing. Like, And he goes, well, why are you scared? And I said, because it just, you know, I just think it looks like it's going to be impossible, like it's going to be super scary and I can't do it. And he said, well, what's different about you compared to those people there? And I thought, nothing. Nothing is different. I'm exactly, no, no one there is superhuman with Olympic medals, you know, um, emblazoned on their chest. They are just normal people just going down a water slide. So he goes, well, come and have a go. If you don't like it, you don't have to do it again. So I did it. And, of course, I loved it. And that was like a major epiphany in that next phase of becoming that elite mindset that you're talking about. And then I realised, yeah. hey, you know what, I have been limiting myself because I don't know if anyone's ever been limiting themselves of their true potential, most of us don't enjoy that. We don't enjoy saying we can't. We make up excuses and it's actually quite awkward and it feels uncomfortable and you never go to bed at night going, yeah, I am super stoked with the person I am. You always go to bed at night going, I wish I could be better. I wish I could be better. I don't know how. I don't know how, but I wish I could. That was me anyway. I wanted more. I didn't know how to get there. And then I realised that there was a very simple methodology in that and that was to start looking towards other people, seeing how they did it and just replicating some of the, the small things that they were doing and then just do it because I realised that you didn't have to be the, the, um, the leader in everything. You could sometimes copy and, and you would learn what other people did just because they did it. And, and so that became a thing. Yeah, and you get there quicker. Yeah, and that became. You get there quicker when you're modelling the best. Exactly. So that became one of my, my little um, go-tos to get through anything tough in life was to go, all right. So I started getting into reading biographies and autobiographies. You know, it didn't matter who they were about. I was just like, I like their story. If they could do it, I can do it. And, and so I was, yeah, modelling off other people and realising that, there were some really ordinary people in the world that did some pretty extraordinary things and I was no different. 
Um, and then I think we got into cycling just purely because we moved to the Gold Coast. Oh, no, I was, I was into cycling in, in Sydney when we were living in Sydney, but I didn't start competing to the Gold Coast. And I, I was so scared. I was shit scared of, of competing because I was definitely thinking that people who competed were like Olympians. And then I realised once I got yeah. into competing that actually there's D grade. There's not A grade. There's A grade. B grade, C grade, D grade, even E grade. And you can compete within people who are of your level. And I really, really loved it and had a great time. And then I started to do um, really well in, in the mountain biking scene. And I was still scared, but, you know, it was just as as I've learned is turning up is the hardest thing. Turning up and getting that first pedal stroke out of the starting the starting gate is the most challenging thing to get going. Um, and then, yeah, finishing was the next challenge. And then I realised that I had a really good finish on me. Other people, the longer it got, the better I was. And then I yeah. had my daughter. So I'd been married since 18 and main one long story short, I had Saskia, my daughter, um, five days before my 21st. And that was deliberate because I didn't know whether I could have children and I was married and we were poor. So, you know, what does it matter if you have a kid? You've got no money. You, you don't know whether you can have children anyway. So we had Saskia and, and of course, then you get involved in parenting. And so yeah. I had that big hiatus of a good 10 to 12 years of just dabbling in a bit of sport. So during this period, though, this is where I really learned that it's okay, I don't have to be an Olympian to be an athlete. So I started, um, I actually started playing football, Aussie rules football, and I had a real good time. I wasn't the most skillful player, but I was, I had a lot of tenacity. I, I was someone that no one wanted to be on the field with because I would have a crack at them. You know, I was definitely. I can imagine you. <laughs> Yeah, Jess, if you were on there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like a little, like a little pocket rocket. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was definitely <laughs> like a little bull terrier. And um, <laughs> so then I started umpiring football, which is really scary because you've got to know the rules and you've got to blow a whistle and you're you're in people's view and people are wa wanting to look to you for a decision. So you've got to develop this thick skin. And I thought, well, hang on, you know, again, if, if other people can do it, then why can't I? You know, people aren't born out of the womb with, with this ability to blow a whistle. You've got to learn these things. You've got to learn the rules. So that was really cool too. And then I got involved in rowing, rowing on the river, but that was kind of boring. And so I got involved in rowing on the surf. So I became a surf boat rower. And then that was scary too because you're rowing out into these massive big waves and you're, You've got these four, there's, you know, four of you in the boat and you've got this sweep that's looking up the waves, steering you into these waves. And, and, and so you've got to have this faith. You've actually literally got to have blind faith as well as faith in the crew and faith in your ability and realise that these boats float. All you've got to do is row. Um, you know, people don't really die surf boat rowing. It's okay. Um, and I came out of that and, and I guess... We got back into mountain biking. Um, it was a bit of a we were we were running at the Yu Yangs, and then someone said to us that there's mountain bike trails here too. Do you want to go mountain biking? And I realised that I still had my mountain bike, and that that would be cool. And that was, you know, we got back into mountain biking slowly, out of just being at the Yu Yangs and running. And that's when I realised at 2005, 
oh my god this is the best thing I am never going to drop the baby again with my mountain biking and so that has been a constant since then but anyway I turned up to my first race and at that point in my very first race I realized that I actually wasn't the worst person on the course because you know in my mind I'd always thought that you know I probably wasn't very good. And we all do this. We all have this imposter complex that comes and visits us and says, you don't deserve to be here. And then I, I finished yeah. the race and I realised, okay, well, we didn't come on the podium, but I didn't come last either. I, I think I've got potential here. And I was about 31, 32 at that age, at that stage. And um, I said to my friend who I paired up with on this race and I said, I'm going to get really good at this and I'm going to become... I'm going to aim to become an elite rider. So this is all this period of time from from the moment I did um, the bike ed course, I guess, in grade five and six at around the age of 10 and all those different periods that I've spoken about to now at 32, it's taken me all this time to realise I actually want to be an elite athlete. And then she, she says to me, you know, there's a lot of really good people out there. You probably don't have a great chance at achieving that. You're 32. And then I just went, oh, oh, hang on a minute. You don't drag me back down. And and I just realised that there was a lot of people in my life at that point that were didn't particularly want me to succeed or perhaps had bad views of success for themselves and I just went I've got to get rid of those people um and it wasn't yeah. like a conscious decision you just start moving away from those people because you have different goals and at that point I realized I still had a lot of work to do though JJ a lot of work so that's when I invented or you know the one percent rule isn't an invention I don't have the monopoly on that idea but I I turned it into my rule something that I could work on and that was just to get out and improve on one thing once a week for one hour and just improve that one thing by 1%. And all I had to do, and yeah. it could be my mindset, it could be um, how I was riding, it could be technique, it could be my fitness. It just had to be one element of my mountain biking that I had to focus on per week. And if I, I realised that if I did that once a week, every week, for 52 weeks in the year, that was fail-proof. You couldn't fail. And I was like, Wow shit, I have just created this unfailable way to get good. Huh, I'm going to make sure that I'm I'm going to make sure I do this. And, of course, as soon as you start seeing the tiny little incremental improvements, one hour a week is you start doing two hours a week because you're motivated and then all of a sudden you start having bigger improvements and then your impact your interest compounds you don't just get these tiny little one percent is all of a sudden you'll have a huge growth period of 20 percent and you know it's not always smooth upwards upwards you do have moments where it doesn't go up but at the end of that year i had been in 26 races i had podiumed in 13 and um I, I didn't enter as an elite athlete. You still have the ability to enter as an entry-level, sort of a sport entry-level kind of athlete. And that's when I realised, well, I can no longer be an entry-level athlete. I have to enter elite from now on. And then that's how I became an elite athlete. <laughs> Long story, but um, it was a lot of, yeah, just a lot of moments in my life that I look back on and I'm so grateful for the adversity. I'm, I'm grateful for the challenges. And even now at 47, I'm still learning and I can look back at everything that I've done and I realise that 
every time she hits the fan that there's this beautiful thing that's going to come out of it. So I, I, look, I look forward to adversity and I look forward to what it brings me because it stretches me. Wow. And so, and what are you most proud of in regards to your, you know, so your mountain biking? What, what's, what was the first uh, award that you got, you know, race that you won? What was the biggest thing that, that was in, instrumental to you that you think you were standing up on that podium that time and thinking, wow, I, I did Yeah, this. look, that was probably, I think it was um, 2009 at Easter and we were up in Canberra and it was for an Australian national championship. So a green and gold jersey was going to be awarded for the male and female of this 24-hour solo championship for a national title. And, of course, I was going in there with, you know, if you think about it, I started applying myself in February of 2006. That's when I developed that 1% rule. So, you know, we're probably looking at about three years of growth and, um, and building to that athlete. And here I am at, I guess, a national level competition and I still felt that even with all the training that perhaps I didn't deserve to be there, yet 50% of me, I always talk about the devil and angel kind of on your shoulder, 50% 50 of me was there saying, you've done the work, there's nothing stopping you from being an Australian champion, someone has to win it. And why not you? Because you've done the work. It's not like you've just rocked up here and gone, you know, oh, I'll just try and beat everyone, you know. You've actually done the work. But then the devil is there on the other side saying, well, you don't deserve it. There's other people that are better than you. Look at you. You're not your natural athlete, you know. I mean, I don't look like a natural athlete. I look like a chunky little, you know, I guess like a, I probably look better in a – you look like you know, in, in my <laughs> mind at that point, I I'm thinking yeah. that athletes need to look like they belong on track and field, you know. But yeah, <laughs> and I just it's it was my own self-imposed view of myself. So when we turned up, you know, normally yeah. my my husband always thought I had incredible potential, and you know, he without him by my side and constantly saying. Um, I guess, you know, affirmations of, you know, why not you? You've done all the work. Um, I see how mm -hmm. hard you work. You, it's not until you get a reflection, and I think this is the going off track a little bit. This is where we need to, regardless of what competition we're after or whether we're not after any competition, we do need to look in the mirror at some point. And I don't mean literally look in the mirror. We need to have some sort of reflection of our journey. And sometimes it is it is a mentor that we need to talk to or it is we need to put ourselves out there for potential um, failure to see, well, how far have I come? And so I was looking at that and going, all right, well, this is an Australian championship and this is going to give me a really good indication of where I'm at. So I had no idea. Like I wanted to win. Of course I wanted to win. But I thought, you know, even if you come third in this, imagine that, imagine that. So then anyway, during the night, um, the person that was the Australian champion, she was winning and she had put in probably about half an hour in me. And this course, this particular course in a 24-hour mountain bike race, you go around a, a particular um, a mountain biking single track course um, as many times as you can within a period of time to try and beat the other person. 
So sometimes. So did you did you say that she had half an hour? Yeah, she was on half you. an hour in front of me. What half an hour? Yeah. So we're <laughs> right. Well, that seems like a long time to me. I'm, I'm no athlete, so to me, it's like wow, half an hour in yeah, front so of you. That seems like yeah, a long time. And, and it was. We were about twelve hours into the race because the race starts at midday. So by about by about midnight, she yeah. in about twelve uh, thirty minutes into me. Now, what what became really I became really well known for was my ability to go hard during the night, my ability to beat people during the night. And I didn't know that that was one of my strengths, but it became one of my strengths. And she went too hard, and I came good during the night. And also, there's something really funny I'm about to bring up. There's something that happens when you go around a course and you eat and drink, and that is that your body does eventually need to go to the toilet. And this, and this particular Ooh. race, this particular race, I was desperate to go to the toilet for number twos. Oh my goodness! It was just yeah. It was just like oh, my stomach was starting to hurt, and I was like, I just need to go to the toilet. But it's too much hassle, you know. You got to take your clothes off. You got to take your lights off. You got to do this. You got to do that. Can you wear a nappy? <laughs> Can you wear that? You're little enough to wear a nappy. Can you imagine that as you're riding? That would be disgusting. But no, anyway. Um, I finally, I finally at about five o'clock in the morning got to go to the toilet and go to the portaloo, and it was like, I don't know, you know, I'll put in a bit of humour here, but it always works. If you go to the toilet and you offload about a kilo of of, of waste, <laughs> and after you've been hanging to do it for four hours, the relief is immense, and you become a new woman. And, and, oh, you. Ready to go then? That's how you I did, the and that was it. I was slowing down. You know, I was definitely slowing down because I was just—you just needed a big poop, and you were—you were, you were ready did. to go. And, and look, you know, that's the reality of it. I got to go to the Portaloo. I offloaded a, a lot of um, extra luggage, and I felt amazing after that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and I started hitting it like I'd had about seven Red Bulls in a row, and and it was. This secret weapon, and then I ended up beating her by a lap. And so you you asked me what I was wow. most proud of, and at that point in time, when I realised, oh my god, I've just beaten someone who was she was the second best person in the world at that time, and she was she was the Australian wow. champion, and I had beaten her all by the use of a portaloo. Um, oh, and and of course my own ability <laughs> right by. That was when I. That was when I realised, wow, okay, I've got some potential here. And and I also, as part of that, um, not only did I get the green and gold jersey and I, I, oh, there was some cash and, you know, just the accolades of being the Australian champion, I also won an airfare to go to Canada and be a part of the world championship. And so that was a return airfare to Canada, which was quite expensive. And, and so I went, oh, okay, I suppose I'll be, go to the world championship shit I didn't plan for that and then yeah I, I went across and, yeah. and did that that was only it was in the July so that was Easter so I only had a few months to tune up and go and and become you know try and become a world champion and I went over there and spent quite a bit of money it was very expensive anyway um, and I became I came fourth in the world and that was my my first attempt wow. and I was very it was a bit disappointing because, um, you know, you think you get on this roller coaster ride of maybe if I can beat second in the world, maybe I can do better than that. 
So that that was the impetus to yeah. become the best I ever could, and I had eighteen months to plan to win my first world championship. So that was um, the inroads into that was uh, having the devastation of spending ten thousand dollars to go to Canada. Cause I had to take Norm over there. We had to spend accommodation, his airfare, blah 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 blah. And I come back and I went, well, if I'm going to ever try to become a world championship world champion again, I'm not going to waste my opportunity. I'm going to win. And that's when I really put all my eggs in one basket and went, uh, I guess, you know, I, I devised a lifestyle that became, a, I guess, a little bit more than my 1% rule. It became uh, do today what others won't so you can do tomorrow what others can't. And I just employed that. I employed that strategy every day of my life. Yeah. How do you overcome, like, if you think about one of the biggest disappointments, you like you talked about when you just said you're fourth in the world, I'm like, wow, and you're like, yeah, but, you know, how do you overcome those disappointments when you put in so much frigging work to, you know, for, for these races, you know, how do you overcome the big disappointments? Well, I guess, you know, as I always say to the athletes that I coach, you've got to have a very strong why. And if you don't have a strong why, yeah. then the disappointment may overtake your desire to improve and you might just say, oh, well, it probably wasn't meant to be and maybe I'm not that invested in it. And that's fine. I think if people want to do that, you've got to own it. You can't sit there and whinge and complain about it for too long. Own it and move along. But for me, overcoming that disappointment, I think it was a beautiful thing. I needed to fail. I think every, like I said to you before, every time I have a failure or something bad happens that I'm not really enjoying, I know that on the other side there's this amazing result that's waiting for me if I just put in the hard work. So I guess I've learned that from, from when I had cancer. That was probably the, the biggest lesson I learned was yeah. just deal with it, turn it into a process and know that you will come out the other side a stronger person. So I guess for me, coming out forth, coming out back home and realising that I wanted to win was my realisation that I was invested and if I was going to be invested, then I needed to make it really work. So um, it really, I guess to answer your question, coming, overcoming the disappointment was turning it into how I could make that disappointment work for me. And we yeah. all have that opportunity to have something bad happen to us. And you see people do it all the time. You know, something bad will happen like their child will die because of something that was out of that control and the parents then, you know, start up a foundation and then get involved and then do something positive with that adversity. And so for me, turning that adversity into a positive was how do I become a world champion? So I started to, again, study other people who had done it before me and go, how did they do it? Oh, okay. I like that strategy. Oh, how did they do it? Oh, yeah, I like that strategy. So I became very eclectic and started to go, well, how can I employ that into the person that I am? So I think it's it's very it's very easy to look at other people and say, how did they do it? But the hardest thing is, and most people will do this, the hardest thing is to actually do it yourself. People go to 
seminars all the time learning how to, you know, be their best version of themselves, but then do they go home and actually put that into action? So I'm... Yeah, so I made sure absolutely. that I, I was actionable. I was and actioning I think, everything I said I would do. Yeah. I'm reading a book at the moment around mindset, about the growth mindset and yes. the fixed mindset. And and I'm listening to you. And, you know, the, the fixed mindset is someone that believes that their skills or intellect or, you know, their talents are unchangeable, that they, it's fixed. And then you've got the people that have got this growth mindset that believe that skills and intellect and talents can be developed when you, you know, through practice and perseverance. You have such a growth mindset. It's like you're always growing. It's And that's when you talk about your 1% rule, it's about the growth that you yeah, can have all yeah. the time. And I think that's a really powerful yeah, thing. I think you, I've had people say this to me before, especially whilst I was still in that world of 24-hour racing, they were just saying, you know, how do you do that? Don't you have any downtime? And I said, yes, but even my downtime is with purpose. And I know that sounds, sometimes that does sound yeah. exhausting, but I've always... <laughs> Not I've to always, me. <laughs> I've always, yeah, but I've always had this mindset Yeah. If I am going to take some downtime, so let's say, for example, sit in front of the TV and vegetate for two hours and watch my numbing Netflix, then own it and, ex and, and have that as going, this is my two hours downtime where I'm going to recalibrate my brain. Yeah. And as soon as you, as soon as you engage yeah. that as a, a meaningful activity, then it becomes part of the journey and i think i think probably where you know a lot of people lack direction is because they haven't acknowledged the different facets of their life and what they do to help them become better people we just instantly sit down and watch the tv for example and not not acknowledge what that's doing for us at that point so if you're going to sit down you, you, you have a, a goal for it. It's like, all right, I, I've got an hour downtime. While I'm sitting down in front of the TV, I'm going to switch off my brain and I'm going to not look at my phone and I'm going to totally immerse myself in chilling out like a villain. I am going to chill. And if you do that, then that's great. But if you, you can multitask, you can do some stretching or whatever, or if you've had too much TV, well, then you go, well, that's not adding to the main goal. So, yeah, that's. That's yeah, like you say. Yeah. You talk <laughs> about language. <laughs> you talk, I I actually did that on Sunday. I I said to myself, this is the time I'm just going to do a net I hadn't done Netflix for ages. I pay for it every month. <laughs> and I'm like, I I never really have time to just sit and I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna veg. I'm actually gonna sit here and I'm gonna watch yes, Dead yes, to Me. Yes. I don't know if you watch that as a series. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You can't just watch one. And so I just watched the whole oh, wow. series on Sunday with my blanket, my dog, and I was as happy as Larry. And I didn't feel guilt because it was part of my program. It was like, this is what I'm doing. As yeah. you said, I'm doing it with purpose. Yeah. And it I is love amazing that. when you do that, you feel so reinvigorated. And I think it's, it's so important for us as motivated humans to 
um, have that time out in our lives. It's not, you know, part of striving and part of um, being a lifelong learner and looking for opportunities to grow is you, you do have to press reset. You do have to switch your computer off. Yeah, yeah. And how do you, like, with a race, how do you physically and mentally prepare? I, like I'm no athlete. I'm just getting into, if anything, in my life. Uh, fitness has been something that that mm. I go in and out of. Um, and so I'm one of those people in lockdown, as we're in lockdown now with or half lockdown, um, with COVID-19, I'm one of those people that I've got my, I've got a, uh, treadmill and I'm really getting back into my fitness and I remember years ago uh, Jess I I hadn't ran at all I'd never run and I thought I will you know we lab- we can label ourselves in different um, times and I was like I'll never be a runner and I started running and I went um, and I, I went for this I think the longest I'd ran was like two kilometers and I went in to do this race I've never done a race before um in Williamstown mm. and it was 12 kilometers <laughs> I remember waking up you're talking about the person that was you know beside you on the bike saying well oh, I don't think you can do that um it was a rainy day my husband's like I think you're gonna <laughs> I think you're gonna die like how can you do 12 kilometers you're gonna have a heart attack I'm like no nah, I'm doing it I'm doing it um but the biggest thing I found was for me, because this track, you had to go, it was a six-kilometre track mm. and you had to do it twice. And in my head, and I remember I'd only run two kilometres, and I remember thinking to myself, once I did that six kilometres, I freaking yeah. got to do it yeah. again. <laughs> and so in my mind I had to mentally prepare myself for that because I knew that there was a possibility for me to feel like, oh, shit, like how am I going to do that again? Yep. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So how do you, what are the tricks and techniques well, that you use? Well, the first one that I always used to tell myself because my um, racing was 24-hour mountain biking, when you would start at midday, the race would be finished by midday the next day. So let's just think now, what's our time? It's 11.52. Before we know it, it'll be 11.52 tomorrow, Yeah. yeah? And we'll, you'll go, where did the day go? Yeah. Oh, and the only, the only difference is yeah. we get to go to sleep at night. And if we're lucky, we'll have a very restful sleep. If we're not so lucky, it won't be so restful. But that's beside the point. 24 hours goes down quickly. So I, I would use these strategies of just telling myself 24 hours is not actually a long time. It goes so quickly. So you have to then break it down into micro moments. So those micro moments then become one-hour chunks and then within those one-hour chunks are one-minute chunks. So you've got 60, 60 chunks within that hour. And once you break once you break a minute down, a minute down yeah. is not that long at all. So you just get that next minute done, that next minute done, the next minute yeah. done, the next. Before you know it, an hour is done. Then before you know that, you're like half a day. Half a day is gone. And like you said, it's going out for that second half a day that's the hardest bit because if you say, oh, wow, we've already done 12 hours and then you go, oh, but on the off side, of the, on the other side of that, we've got another 12 hours to go, shit. Um, so then you have to bring yeah. it back to those tiny <laughs> micro moments. It's just another minute. It's just another minute. It's just yeah. another minute. Like how often 
if you just, you know, you go, oh, geez, I'm just going to the toilet. I just need to do a week. And within a moment, five minutes is gone because you've washed your yeah. hands, you've done this, you've done that, you've, you're back in and you go, geez, if we didn't have to go for a wee 10 times a day, you know, wouldn't life be great? Or if we didn't have to cook lunch, all those tiny micro moments add up to such a big amount of time. So it's just like as soon as you break it down into smaller chunks, the smaller chunks instantly become bigger chunks and the bigger chunks start to chunk away at your day. So that was the first thing was um, develop yeah, develop a, a, a mindset to break up the day because if you think about anything too big, it becomes too too big. <laughs> you just go, I can't possibly do that. And then the other thing was to have a little bit of blind faith. I cannot tell you how many times on the start line that I would say, I cannot believe I'm about to enter into this hurt. I cannot believe it. I, I'm, I'm here again. I'm going to do it. And then I just yeah. go, yeah, but once the first hour is over, you're in. So I don't know whether you've ever done that with work or when you're turning up to, say, catch a plane yeah. overseas or something big that requires a lot of steps along the way to get to that point. You've just got to enter into the next process, the next, the next, the next, the next. Then before you know it, you're in the state of flow. It's all happening. But as long yeah, go on. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the opposite to that is when people do the overwhelm. So the overwhelm is putting everything, you know, building. It's like, I've got to do all of this stuff. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Um, and doing the opposite of that, chunking it down, makes it feel so much yeah, it does. more achievable. I guess the thing is, is that if you, and I still say this with my athletes now, it's all about the process. Even if you're doing a 30-minute race, and it's a really fast and furious, but it's only 30 minutes. We're going to work backwards from that. What is your goal? Um, what do you want to achieve out of this? What tools do you have at your, your disposal to make this happen? Um, what are the things that are going to stop you from making it happen? Um, you know, and you're just constantly working back from that. Then you finally get to the 30-minute race or the 24-hour race or whatever it is, and then you've worked on all your processes. So really they become checkboxes. So you just have a checklist of, okay, that's done, tick, oh, that's done, tick, oh, that's done. And before you know it, you're rolling down that, that water slide and then you can't actually stop. You're, you're, you're in it. That's, there's, no, there's no need to stop. You just yeah. keep going. And, um, and I think that really is a metaphor for life as well is that each day, like I've been through some pretty big periods of depression in my life and, you know, you don't want to wake up in the morning, you don't want to do anything and um, I don't know, I can't explain why these have occurred in my life other than they've often happened after massive, massive events of achievement where where I've achieved a world championship and I've just withered away and wanted to hop in my doona and not be answerable to anyone. And I, I've, soon, I've since learned how to deal with it but at that time it's like... I don't actually want to end my life, but I'd like someone to whisk me away and take me away, if that makes sense. I, I don't want to be answerable yeah. to anyone yeah. anymore. I've done. I'm done. And I think that's when you've achieved something so great, perhaps that's the opposite of what I've experienced. So anyway, when I'm talking about depression and when I'm talking about those feelings where I've wanted to not do anything or be involved in anything or, or talk to anyone, I've just said to myself, well, just get up, just get up. Then once you're up, okay, just have yeah. a shower. Okay, just have a shower. 
okay, now just get dressed. All right, I'll just get dressed. Now just take the dog for a walk. And then once you start ticking off those boxes, then all of a sudden you're living. But if you don't tick off the first box, yeah. you can't possibly get to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. So, you know, I was able to remind myself that even though I didn't know why the chemicals in my brain weren't working properly, I could override that with processes and it got me going again. So every every time I, I have moments of unmotivated yeah. life, I just go, well, look, let's develop a process. What do you want to achieve today? What do you want out of life? And even if you don't know what you want, just let's start doing something. Let's do something positive. And you know those days, JJ, where you only achieve one thing and you just, you've got to celebrate that one thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think what you're talking about is so important, Jess, too, because, and I'm doing some research in regards to this at the moment, is that I... Sometimes people look at, at, at people in life that are achieving, they see them achieving and they think everything's rosy and they think that they're always <laughs> on, they're always achieving, they're always, you know. Um, and I think it's, and, and particularly from, from my experience as a coach and being in the coaching world, and you would know this as, a, as an athlete coach, is that it is so important mm. to experience different emotions and it's it's. You know, it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel um, frustrated. It's okay to feel angry. Um, but you don't you don't live there. Like you don't yeah. live in sadness for twelve months, right? Um, but but I think it's and I think because what can happen is people can feel this. You, you might be an achiever listening right now. You might feel this sadness, and you think I can't feel that. I've got to be positive. And so what happens is you stack your emotions of guilt onto that sadness. Like I feel guilty yeah. for feeling no, sad. Does. does that make sense? And I think it's, it's important to be able to feel those emotions and to be able to get yourself out of them when you, when you want to get yourself out of them, but also to be able to feel all those different emotions as well. As an achiever, as a woman, as a man, as a, a human being, I think that's important to note that we have all these range of emotions. <laughs> yeah, that, and, that's and that's what makes exactly us human. Right. Can't, and that's why I talk to my clients and, and myself about it is if they're there, you just own it. Like don't. Don't whinge. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm a big one myself, you know, for myself. Yeah. If I hear myself whinging, I just go, hang on a minute. You can change your mind at any point. This is the magic thing. You know, I, I like, yeah. there's a movie, there's a few movies that I really yeah. like. Like, you know, that one, um, it's a, I think it's called Beautiful Life or uh, it's that subtitle one where they're at the concentration camp and I think it's a French movie. Um. And, and, right. and I think Will Smith has one where it's um, oh, what's it called? Oh yes, yes. Um, ah, oh. in, in pursuit. In I know, pursuit I know the one you went with his little boy. Yeah, that's yeah. So it, pursuit of happiness. You know, yeah, it is. Just yeah, that's a mindset. beautiful. Movie. Like, okay, sometimes we are in really, literally shit phases of our life. We really, really are, but even when we yeah. think we can't get out of them, we actually can. And sometimes, it, you know, 
the truth that we tell ourselves is actually not the truth. It feels the truth, but there's the operative word. It feels the truth. And we and I know this yeah. sounds like such a, a white privilege kind of mentality, but we do have the option to change how we look at things, even if our reality seems even if our reality seems horrific. Um, yeah. We can still choose our thoughts. We can still choose our emotions. And that's where I guess if you, I've just probably landed upon probably one of my biggest tools that I I taught myself as an athlete, no one, no one can see inside me on the start line. Um, you know, when there's all these athletes around who are wondering what's Jess got in her today, you know, who's going to win this race, I thought, no one can see inside my head. No one can see what what I'm telling myself. That is my secret weapon. And I think we all have that as a secret weapon. Yeah. Mm. I love that. I love it. And so when when you were when you were younger, so how 14. old were you when you were diagnosed with cancer? Fourteen. So you were already Riding yeah, at the yeah, time I'm before before that, how did yeah? How did uh, that help you in regards to going through you know your diagnosis? Tell me about well, a little I guess bit about when that. I was, when I was diagnosed with with cancer, I remember thinking, "Wow, this is the first big, amazing thing that's ever happened in my life." That's a really weird thing to think. But I was kind of like, oh, kind of this is what life is like. Life is full of amazing, crazy, weird and wonderful, not so wonderful things that happen to people. I guess this will happen to me again. I'm not immune to things going wrong or right. Um, I was very circumspect about it, just like this is just going to be a thing. So it's it's up to me to decide how I get through it. It's not... It's not, oh, my God, I've got cancer. It's, oh, this is just a part in my life where I've got cancer. Okay, all right. So I said to my mum at that point, okay, I I don't know why. I've got no idea why. I can't even tell you. But I said I want to eat um, the best food we can. I want it to be organic. I want it to be this. I want it to be that. And um, I'm going to take control of my health. I'm going to take control of my mindset. And, um, yeah, I'm going to get through this. And so that was my decision. We Splashdown opened up because I lived in Whittington and I just said, can we get a membership at Splashdown? I want to improve my health and fitness. Um, and so I started going to the gym and I started doing aqua aerobics and aerobics. And I did my first fun run when I was 15. And uh, it was the one around Eastern Gardens. I think it was 10 kilometres. And it, it might have actually been um, – 3GL or something had uh, sponsored it at the time. And that was like, oh, my God, 10-kilometre fun yeah. run. That was devastating. Um, but, yeah, getting through getting through cancer, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps this was something I was born with, that I was born with an ability to just have a realistic um, understanding of what was going on and not catastrophize over it. Uh, and just see it for what it was. And and when I came out of it, or I guess, you know, got to the end of it, I realised, oh, that was just a series of processes. I remember just going, that was just a week at a time, just a week at a time. 
have my treatment, deal with the vomiting, deal with feeling nauseated, deal with losing my hair. But just all I did was focus on the things I could control and that was being happy, healthy and well and feeling that I had some say in what was going on. Do you know what I mean? Like I had control over my mind um, and that yeah. gave me at the end, I guess, a little bit of um, courage to realise that I have control over my destiny. And so as as a young person, though, I knew that I wanted to do amazing things, but I didn't know what that meant and it frustrated me because most young people, you know, we, we want to do things but we're too young to know how, we're too young to know what, and older people don't believe what you, you, you know, what your capabilities are. So, yeah, I, I struggled. I struggled with knowing what that yeah. meant for me for probably until I was probably 30-odd. And even then I, I realised that being an athlete, was wow. nothing to do with whether I was a world champion. It became just like for me how I looked to other people to gain inspiration and if they can do it, I can do it. I realised that I was just part of that journey for other people. I just had to be that I just had to be that next person in the cog yeah. in the wheel to show other humans that to be a good human and to be um do things that other people think is impossible is that you've just got to keep persevering and prove that the impossible can be done and then you'll provide the platform for other people to do more amazing things and hand over the baton, so to speak. Yeah. How did, how did that whole you, your cancer journey, how did that change you as a person oh, at that young age? How did it change you? Very... Um, diplomatic about things it's just like do you know what we're not here for a long time make the most of it just get on with it uh there's no barriers there's anything you want to achieve is yours to be achieved it took me a while to really live that but I I remember just I all my young you know teenage friends were out saying things like oh Bross is in Melbourne do you want to come and see Bross do you remember Bross <laughs> uh, you know, they're around the time of Millie and nah. and all those. Yeah. I and I was, bang, just like, is it? I was just like, I don't <laughs> want to go see Bross in Melbourne. I, I just, I became very much intrinsically motivated. That's probably how it changed me. I did not give a shit what other people were doing. It was just like, I'll just do my own thing. That's it. That's really motivating. Yeah. I'll go and do that. So um, I never looked for other people for confirmation that what I was doing was right or good or otherwise. I just followed my internal compass. And that's probably another reason why I felt a bit depressed after I won my first world championship is I didn't realise that other people were watching. And when they wanted a piece of me, it was like, oh, hang on, I didn't yeah. do this for you. I did it for me. This was a journey for me, not for you. Uh yeah. And then that's that was when I realized that, like I yeah. said, my becoming a world champion and my reaching out to, I guess, access the, the common people out there who were riding bikes and looked up to me, I realized that that was my that was my purpose. My purpose was not to have green and gold jerseys hanging up on the wall. Yeah. My purpose was to provide a platform to show other people that. You don't have to be born this extraordinary athlete. You can just develop. If you want it, you can develop it. And 
I love that, and that's what you do, what your work is now is yeah, mentoring, yeah, coaching, coaching athletes. Know that that's what it was. I. I literally thought that I was going to be some sort of social worker or something like that, you know, but what I'm doing now is I think with, with my coaching clients is that uh, 80% of our relationship is relationship building and me trying to understand what motivates them so that I can help them become the best person that they want to be. And then the other 20% is writing a program to get the physiological changes you know, it, it, and again, you know, going back yeah. to you doing the the fun wow. and and um, people looking at physical challenges or whether or not they're an athlete, that's that's such a minor thing. You know, when we put athletes up on a pedestal, even those who are supreme, who I you know just go wow, like Michael Jordan for example, and you look at someone like that and go wow, they're one in a million kind of supreme athletes that it really been born with some physiological um uh, preferences so to speak and um they're still got to work on their mindset they're going to still be tough as nails uh and i guess it's just finding your niche that's the hardest that's the hardest bit i think is finding your niche in the world yeah Beautiful. And so who who else do you work with uh, as a coach, Jess? People that I – so, so the your kind client. of people that I work yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah, so look, I, yeah. I guess the people yeah, that, yeah. that are attracted to me, and it's kind of interesting how it happens because I don't do a heap of advertising to say, hey, come and, come and be coached by me because the, the kind of people that are attracted to me, I guess – often have the same kind of desire or mindset uh, they seek me out and and often the people that aren't interested in that relationship building probably go and find another coach which is kind of good because I can't I don't find I coach very well if people just want a program does that make sense I always say to people you know you're paying me yeah yeah um because you want to invest in yourself and I, for me to get the most out of, out of you, um, I invest me in you. And so, you know, it is an emotional investment. So, you know, the kind of people that I coach um, are everything from just everyday athletes who want to, they're mainly cyclists, but I, I coach a lot of runners as well who, who do trail running and, and whatnot. But it's, I guess the people who are attracted to me are the people who are wanting to expand as people. And that's, I'm really blessed to be able to meet these people because I guess like you, the kind of work you do, you, uh, at the end of the day, these people become better versions of themselves. And then I feel that I'm adding value to the world. Yeah. And that's my my one little goal in life is beyond yeah. gold medals, beyond world championships is, you know, when we think about why are we here on the world? Why are we here to suffer? Why are we here to persevere? Why are we here to grow? It is to add value to the world. While we may as well, while we're here, you know, if we think about all the people that are before us and all the good things that have been done, it's value adding. It's not about being. It's not about being remembered for being, you know, the yeah. most amount of um, 
wins or the most amount of medals. It's all the the value that you've added to people and to the world and that's what keeps me going and uh, they're the kind of people I like to coach. Beautiful. So if they're listening right now, well, I have a, Jess, I have how do they get in contact the with you? That's jessicadouglas.com and I have a contact contact me on um, my page and that's probably the best way. And I have a blog on there that has, you know, a lot of my blogs that I write aren't just race results. I, I get a lot of learnings out of my adversity. I don't win all the time, JJ. I have a lot of failings. <laughs> we all don't. <laughs> we wouldn't learn if we did if we went all the time. The knowledge that I may fail, <laughs> but I'm not worried about it. And people think, oh, but what what if that goes wrong? And I go, yeah. what if it went right? What if it went right? You know, and I think that's the big thing we can take with yeah, with no matter what we're doing, whether it's you know trying to win a world championship or just do a ten kilometer um, run, we've we've put a lot of our energy into all the things that can go wrong. But what if we put in a strategy of you know what if it goes right, and we invest in that energy, then geez, you know we've got a we've got a hell of a lot yeah. more chance of things going right for us. But then, you know. That's for everyone to find at their own time. People are going to be ready for that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So is there anything that we haven't co- I know we've covered a lot. Is there anything that, that you that I haven't asked you that you want to, to yeah, tell oh, the I mean, listeners about? You have covered pretty much everything. But I think in a nutshell is that um in we 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 are here to we are here to enjoy our life and you've got to find something i think every one of us has something inside us that makes our heart sing and makes you know we we get into a state of flow and we really enjoy it and we really enjoy it we shouldn't deny ourselves of that and and i think you know i i have a lot of family and friends who get caught up in parenting or working and you know I've got a job and and you're constantly using your kids or your job as a scapegoat for why you can't do things and I just think you know I know it's great to earn good money and I know it's great to see your kids get good grades but invest in yourself in some form or another investing in yourself it doesn't have to be sport it can be reading books it can be painting it can be cooking it can be bushwalking, but invest in yourself because that, that is like sitting down and watching Netflix and having a bit of a chill pill. You know, investing in yourself is um, I think probably the biggest the biggest uh, little hint that I can give to people to get more fulfilment out of life. Yeah, and I think at, the, at this moment in time with COVID-19, I think that's, made yes. people stop and do that more. I know it has for me. I mean, we, we mentioned this podcast, for instance. I mean, this, I wanted to do a podcast and interview you for ages, Jess, and because I run events, uh, normally my time has, always, has been filled with events and it was always like, oh, I would like to do a podcast at one stage. Um, but I've been thinking about, you know, I love cooking and, you know, there's there's so many things that we can, um, so many facets of our own self that we can explore 
Uh, and I think it's sometimes we've just got to give our permit, yeah, ourselves yeah. And, permission and once you to do, explore and, them. And you just realise that actually <laughs> we need more than 24 hours in a day and I think you're right with saying about uh, our current state with the uh, coronavirus and the sort of this, the semi-shutdown of our lives. It has availed ourselves the time and we should be utilising that um, and allowing ourselves to invest because it's not very often we get to work from home or um, not be, um, I think, you know, events is one big thing, especially for me and my athletes. No one has any events at the moment. So it's like, well, now's the time to work on all your weaknesses, yeah. all the things you wanted to work on. You're not going to be gifted this time probably again for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I've lo so loved interviewing you, Jess, and I'm going to finish with, for the first time, you're my guinea pig, and we're going to do okay, JJ's rapid-fire 10 yep. questions. <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> now, I'm, I'm embracing uncertainty right now because I haven't done these questions before, but we're just going to go with it. You're the, you're the perfect person to fire these at. All right. So the first question is, oh, man, I think your it would have to be. Um, oh, I can't even think of what it's called. <sighs> okay, we're going to go with um, "Folk of the Faraway Tree" by Enid Blyton. Be oh, I loved that book when I was young. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> I can even see oh, the cover. It funny. was a hard book that I had when I was young. Isn't that fascinating? Um, oh, <laughs> who Street. would play you in a movie? <laughs> if you had one uh, superpower, what would it be? Beautiful. If you had three, you could have anyone, three people over for dinner, whether they're dead or alive uh, right Richard now, Branson. who would those three people um, be? Michael Jordan, Freddie Mercury. Beautiful. Oh. When was the last time you cried? Oh, man. I don't even, I don't know. Probably, probably watching a movie. <laughs> I cry at movies, but I can't exactly tell you. Okay. What TV sitcom family would you be a member oh, of? Oh man. <laughs> probably. Um, uh, I'd I'd like to be maybe um, Seinfeld's sister. Oh, I love it. I love Seinfeld. Uh, what's the strangest Ooh. thing that you've ever eaten? God. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but I once I realised it was liverwurst and I ate liver, that would probably just be the strangest thing. You know when you're you're a kid and you eat liverwurst and then eventually I realised yeah. liverwurst. Oh, that's... Yeah. <laughs> that means it's made out of liver. <laughs> Oh. All right, if you could trade lives with anyone for one day, who would it be and why? <laughs> there goes my dog barking in the background. But anyway, if you could trade lives with anyone for one day, who would it be I'd and like why? to get into the head of Barack Obama. Um, I've always admired him and his outlook and his ability yeah. um, to 
I guess, you know, see see life from other people's point of view. For, well, that's how I see it anyway. But, look, why? Because I like who he stood for and who he stands for, regardless of what he does now. Beautiful. Beautiful. And uh, when, oh, when you dance, tool. what do you look like? Um, <laughs> and your last question is dogs or Lord, cats and that is my oh dog barking God, in the background dogs are my first love but oh, all right dogs listen my dog was telling you yeah, to dog, say dogs you can take a dog for a walk <laughs> my, my dog yeah, I love dogs. Well, my dog—I think my dog's barking because uh, being at, being uh, at home or with COVID uh, nineteen, oh, right. <laughs> uh, I've been getting deliveries more. <laughs> yeah, so I've probably got a present waiting for me. So that's no good. Um, thank you so much, Jess, for today. I know that um, you, your thoughts and your experiences and your journey—I know that there will be many people out there listening to to you and getting so much information um, that's going to help them in their life. So thank you so much. Uh, and make sure anyone that's listening that if you're looking for a coach, then make sure that you're getting contact with Jessica Jess on her Douglas. website. And your website com. is, what's your website again? No, don't, no, no AU, just .com. But if you, go, if you Google Beautiful. it, if you Google it, you'll find it. And it's Douglas and it's Jessica with a C and Douglas, C-O-U-G-L-A-S. Is that right? Perfect. Thank you so much, Jess. I, I'm thrilled that you've come uh, on, on on my podcast show and uh, thank you so much for giving all of your beautiful information. Great. And I thank know you that so you're helping for today, many JJ. people out there with what you do. Okay, see ya. Okay, thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Be Your Own Best Coach with JJ. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and follow me on Instagram at JJ Speaker Coach. And remember to live with insatiable passion, create an empowered life and inspire others to live theirs.